morning, everybody. Happy uh, mid-July to you. Uh, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for uh, this particular Sunday. Ever since Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, your church has been meeting on the first day of the week to commemorate his bodily resurrection from the dead. And that's a wonderful thing because if he rose, then we will rise. And in fact, positionally, um, we're risen already. Uh, You've baptized us into your death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of your son. Our whole identity now is different. So thank you for the first day of the week. Thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. I do pray that you'll be with us in Sunday school and in the main service that follows as we look into your word. We do ask for the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. And now in preparation to receive from your word, we're just going to take a few moments of silence to do business with you, not to restore position, but fellowship if needed so that we can receive Uh, spiritual things from you today. We're grateful, Lord, for the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and we just pray that you will be Intimately involved with everything that goes on at Sugarland Bible Church today, not just in the teaching sessions, but with the children's ministry, youth group, everything that's happening here. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We lift these things up in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can open them up to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38. And um, we had completed our Middle East meltdown study that basically ran for six months. And then I said, well, go ahead and submit any questions that you have, thinking there would just be a few. But apparently this is a subject that's really uh, of curiosity to people, so the questions just keep rolling in. And here are the eight questions we're going to try to tackle today. Um, The first one relates to resurrection during the millennial kingdom. So the question says, you mentioned that there would be birth and death during the millennium. Then, uh, when will believers who die at that time resurrect? I know there are two resurrections for believers at the rapture and after the tribulation. Does the Bible mention a resurrection of believers who died during the millennial kingdom? Well, that's a very perceptive question uh, because um, here is a graph. You can see it. Hopefully you, you can see things better now that we've sort of upgraded our uh, projectors. Can you guys see that a little clearer than normal? All right. Do we get a thumbs up on that? All right. Praise God. Um, 
So basically what you're going to have is two resurrections. There's a resurrection unto life for the believer. And then there's a resurrection unto damnation for the unbeliever. Um, a resurrection is a reunion between a disembodied soul and when they go back into their resurrected body. So we know from passages like Daniel 12, verse 2, there's going to be two of these resurrections at the end. And then it just becomes a matter of putting all of the data together in terms of Bible prophecy. And the resurrection unto life for the believer, the only thing that's tricky about it is it has three parts. Christ's resurrection is part one, which is the first fruits. Just as first fruits guaranteed every other harvests coming in, uh, because Jesus rose, everyone else will rise. And then there's coming part two, which is the general harvest, which is the rapture. At the rapture of the church, every church age believer will receive their resurrected body. Uh, those who are deceased and are with Christ in heaven as we speak, they receive their resurrected bodies first, and they begin to descend, and we who are alive and remain at the time of the rapture, assuming this happens in our lifetime, which I hope it does, but I can't guarantee that, uh, we receive our resurrected bodies second, and the two groups meet in the sky. So that would be resurrection two. And then the third part of the resurrection unto life for the believers is the gleanings where there is a resurrection of Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Then a thousand years will pass and you'll have then what the only thing left on the chart, which is the resurrection of unbelievers of all ages at the end of the millennial kingdom where they'll be placed in their resurrected bodies and as their names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life, they're transferred from Hades into the lake of fire. And you'll see all of that described in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. So it's very interesting that everybody, believer or unbeliever, will resurrect at some point, some unto life, three phases, some unto eternal damnation, which takes place at the end of the millennium. And we know that that middle resurrection there, the general harvest, excuse me, not not the general harvest, the gleanings, I should say. Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs happens um, after the tribulation period is over, but before the millennial kingdom starts. And we get that chronology just by looking at Daniel 12, 1 and 2. It says, There will be a time of great distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So verse 1 is describing the tribulation, a time of unparalleled distress. After that time period is over, then it says many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. So who is that group? That would be the gleanings, Old Testament saints, 
resurrected at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And accompanying them will be the resurrection of people that are martyred in the tribulation period. Um, John in Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6 adds this detail. He says, Then I saw thrones and and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast and his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their right hand. They came to life, resurrection, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead that would be unbelievers of all ages, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over the second death, over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So the whole picture Backing up to my chart here for the resurrection for believers is Christ's resurrection first 2,000 years ago. Then you have the resurrection of um, church-age saints at the point of the rapture. But what about Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs? Uh, what about people that were believers like Abraham before the church age started? And what do you do with believers uh, that get saved in the tribulation period after the church age is over, well, they're part of the gleanings and they're resurrected at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And then a thousand years pass. And then you have a a terrible resurrection um, of all unbelievers at the end of the thousand years. So one of the things to understand about the rapture And when I talk about the rapture, I'm talking there about the general harvest. When these concepts are explained by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he's using harvest imagery that the Jewish mind was well familiar with. Um, The Jews in the Bible did not collect their harvest in one foul swoop. There were phases to the harvest. First fruits came in. And that was a happy time because if the first fruits come in, that's a pretty much a guarantee that the rest of the harvest will eventually come in. Then comes the general harvest, and then God, I believe it's in Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10, was very specific. He says, don't harvest everything. Leave some for the poor so they can come and participate in the harvest as well. And by the way, the book of Ruth revolves around that third wave there. That's where Ruth met Boaz at the gleanings. So when we talk about the rapture, our resurrection, we're talking there about the general harvest. And you can see why people look at all this and they just say, well, let's just use the ram jam and cram method. Let's just make one big resurrection at the end. And that would simplify things. Well, I agree with you, it would simplify things, but that's not what the Bible says. (laughs) Um, Some things in the Bible require a little bit more diligent study, you know, to pick up on. And just 
you know, ramming it all together as one event, as many people do, for the sake of simplicity, um, is not being faithful to the biblical text. So I believe if you want to be faithful to the biblical text, you have to see the resurrection program in this way with all of these different phases. So when the general harvest happens, we get a resurrected body. That's why we should be looking forward to the rapture. Amen? Paul, when he describes the general harvest in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 and 51, says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Meaning mystery, Paul is disclosing a new truth concerning the church age and its participation in the resurrection program that hasn't been disclosed thus far. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. And he's speaking there of our resurrected body. He mentions that in the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he wants us to understand the specific point in time where we as church-age believers, members of the body of Christ, will receive our resurrected body. So that becomes a big reason to yearn for the rapture. Unfortunately, the rapture in most people's minds is as it's portrayed in a lot of movies, it's just this idea of, you know, uh, all of these missing people and, uh, you know, airlines are going to crash because, you know, the pilots could be Christians. And, you know, you get into all this sort of sensationalism and you lose sight of why we ought to be looking forward to the rapture. You look forward to the rapture because if it takes place in our lifetime, not only are we snatched off the earth, that's just half of the par- half of the program, but it's the point in time where you receive your resurrected body, which you desperately need. And I can tell you guys desperately need it because I can look at you and see it. <laughs> you guys can look at me and say, you need a resurrected body too. Original sin affected our natural bodies. Our bodies are wearing down because of original sin. It's what God said in Eden, from dust you are, the dust you shall return. So that's a big problem that we have. And we have a wonderful retirement package here, if I can put it that way, where God promises a resurrected body. And you say, well, how do I know I'm going to get my resurrected body? Well, Jesus came out of the grave, right? That's a fact of history. So his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. So the question is, if that's the resurrection program, as best I've tried to explain it, and if you want to go in, get a greater description of this, go into our Daniel lessons, which are accessible on the SLBC website, and look at our sermon that we did in Daniel 12, verse 2. The title of the sermon was Resurrections in Review. And you can get, I just gave you the Reader's Digest version. You can get a a more in-depth treatment of that uh, should you be interested. So the question is, okay, if all of that is true, then what about people who survive the tribulation, happen to be believers, 
go into the millennial kingdom in their non-resurrected bodies and they happen to die during the millennial kingdom. Because we know from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, that there will be some that survive the tribulation. Some will be goats, unbelievers. They're cast off the earth into Hades. But some are called sheep, and they are believers. They will demonstrate their belief in Yeshua during that time by helping Christ's brethren, i.e. the Jews, during this very dark time of human history where the Jews will be under great persecution. And Jesus will look at them and say, okay, you're believers and you survived the tribulation period. Um, Enter the kingdom. You see all of this in the sheep and goat judgment, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Enter the millennial kingdom in non-resurrected mortal bodies. So what an interesting time period the millennial kingdom is going to be. It's going to be very different than the eternal state. In the millennium, sin will be restrained. It won't be removed completely because you will have mortals living in the millennial kingdom. But in the eternal state, the last two chapters of the Bible, sin is totally removed. In the millennium, the curse is restrained. In the eternal state, the curse is removed. The millennium is in Revelation 20. The eternal state is in Revelation 21 and 22. The millennium, you're going to have resurrected and non-resurrected people living on the earth at the same time. You do have a parallel with that in terms of the... Pause here to make sure I got my words right. In between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Acts chapter 1, there's a 40-day window where Jesus in his resurrected body, body is interacting with his disciples who are in non-resurrected bodies. They're actually Thomas touching his hands and feet. Uh, they're having breakfast together. That would be kind of interesting. You're eating breakfast and you're non-resurrected and mortal and you're eating breakfast with a resurrected person, Jesus Christ. Um, The disciples are asking Jesus questions. It's a teaching session. So if you can picture that 40-day window prior to the ascension of Jesus and you see it described in Acts 1, that's the kind of thing that's going to go on for a 1,000 years where there clearly are resurrected people in the millennial kingdom, you as a member of the church being one of those people, but you're interacting with non-resurrected people. In the millennium, mortal destinies are undecided because the children of the mortals who began the millennial kingdom will have to be evangelized, but in the eternal state, there's no need for evangelism because everybody's destiny is sealed. The millennium is a renovation. The eternal state is an ex nihilo new creation. The millennium is temporary. It only lasts a thousand years. The eternal state is eternal. It lasts forever. The millennium is transitional. 
It transitions humanity from the second advent into the eternal state. But the eternal state is non-transitional. The millennium is a dispensation. And one of the ways you can define a dispensation is humanity is given a test. God gives seven tests in the Bible. We call those the dispensations. We're actually in a test right now in the church age. Are we going to remain loyal to Christ or not? It's not a test for salvation. Once you're saved, you're saved. But as a saved person, I have a choice concerning my loyalty. And I define loyalty by orthodoxy, correct belief, and orthopraxy, correct practice. And if you maintain your orthodoxy and orthopraxy in the church age, you will be fully rewarded at the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. If you don't maintain your orthodoxy and orthopraxy during the church age, it's not like you lose your salvation, but you'll enter eternity not fully rewarded. So even today we're being put through a a test. There's a great test that takes place in the millennial kingdom. Can humanity live under the righteous rule of Jesus? But the eternal state, there's no test. So that's why the millennium is a dispensation, but the eternal state isn't. Um, Gosh, you thought we were finished? Here's another chart. The millennium is timed. It's a thousand years. The eternal state lasts forever. The millennium has luminaries in it, the sun, moon, and stars. In fact, the sun is going to be seven times brighter than what it is right now. I know that's painful to think about here in Houston. But there are no luminaries, sun, moon, and stars in the millennial kingdom. In the millennial kingdom, there's death. You see it described in Isaiah 65, verse 20. Not amongst the resurrected, but against, but amongst the mortals. In the millennial, in the eternal state, there is no death. The millennium will involve a brick and mortar temple with animal sacrifices in it. Ezekiel 40 through 48, but there will be no temple like that in the eternal state because Jesus' presence will illuminate the eternal state. In the millennium, there's going to be satanic activity. Satan is let loose out of solitary confinement at the end of the millennial kingdom to stimulate or reveal a rebellion that's taking place in the hearts of the mortals. But by the time you get to the eternal state, Satan is done. Uh, He's in the lake of fire, and Satan will never harass the human race again. In the millennium, there's rebellion at the end, but there will be no rebellion in the eternal state. So very, very clearly, there are going to be people that die during the millennial kingdom. Uh, The book of Isaiah, chapter 65, verse 20 says if you die at the age of 100, people are going to kind of sit around and say, what a shame such a young man died. And that condition is very different than conditions today, where if you hit age 70 or age 80, you're considered fortunate. Psalm 90 talks about that. So very clearly there's death during the millennial kingdom. And the big question is, okay, you've outlined this whole resurrection program. 
but there's no category here for people who died during the millennial kingdom. When do they get their resurrected bodies? And here's my answer after, uh, I don't know, almost a half an hour of explanation. You ready for my answer? Here it comes. I don't know. I really don't. And the reason I don't know is the Bible doesn't say. Now, the late Dr. John Walvoord had a view on it, and he was very clear when he expressed his view. He says, this doesn't come from the text. This just comes from inference. But he thought that people who died during the millennial kingdom would receive their resurrected body at the point of death. And he says, but that's just an argument from inference. Um, The text specifically doesn't say it. So if I was going to guess, when do those people that die during the millennium, when do they get their resurrected bodies? I would assume that they get them upon death. Can I prove it? No, I can't. Would I start a new church over it? No, I wouldn't. It's It's one of those areas that the Bible just hasn't spoken on. And don't let that bother you. Because God, in the book of Deuteronomy, specifically tells us that he's not going to tell us everything. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed, right here, 66 books, the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all of the words of his law. So God right there says the the, um, revelation I'm going to give to the human race is not going to be exhaustive. And praise God for that, because do you realize that this book, 66 books, would read like the United States tax code if God told us every single thing? Um, The Bible admits that it is a finite revelation. You see examples of that. This is not in my notes or slides, but if you take a quick trip over to the Gospel of John for a minute, the very end of the book. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John, at the end of his Gospel featuring the signs of Jesus Christ, says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life on in his name. Look at John twenty-one twenty-five. Very last verse in the Gospel of John. It says, There were also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that the world itself would not contain the books that would be, would be written. So there were a lot of other things that Jesus did besides the seven signs in John's Gospel. Um, if Everything that Jesus ever did or said was recorded in this book. John says the world itself wouldn't be able to hold the books written thereof. 
So the Bible is telling us it is a finite revelation. Uh, this is frustrating for a lot of people because they want to go to the Bible and they want answers on every single thing. And God in his word says, no, I didn't set up my word that way. However, what you have is enough. Did you catch that? However, what you have is sufficient. Because when you go back to John 20, verse 31 after telling us that not everything Jesus said or did is recorded in John's Gospel, John does say, verse 31, but these have been written so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John says God doesn't tell us everything, but what you have is enough to get saved. And that's a doctrine that we call the sufficiency of the Scripture. The scripture is not comprehensive. The scripture is not complete in every historical detail, but it is sufficient. Um, you see the apostle Peter making that promise of sufficiency in second Peter chapter one, verses three and four. He says, seeing that the, that his divine power has granted to us, what's the next word? Everything, not 99% of things, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises. Where would I find those promises? Right here in this book. So that you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust, In other words, what Peter is saying is what is in this book is not only sufficient or enough information to get folks saved. It's sufficient information to help folks that are saved to reach full stature in terms of their maturity. The sufficiency of the scripture. The same promise is made in 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for, how many good works does it say there? Every good work. Every good work. See how the scripture is mentioned, verse 16? Every good work that it equips us for is mentioned in verse 17. So, my goodness, I would love an answer, Lord, um, concerning when mortals who die during the millennial kingdom receive their resurrected bodies. And God comes back at me and says, I didn't see fit to disclose that to you right now. But don't feel gypped. Don't feel shortchanged. Don't feel like you don't have enough. Because what you have is enough to get you saved, and it's it's enough to help you to grow. And, you know, rather than focusing on the things of the Bible that are not there, at some point we have to start focusing on the things of the Bible that are what? That are there. And believe me, there's plenty there. Amen? Um, and so after a half an hour of teaching, my answer to number one is I don't know. 
Then you guys are asking for your money back, I guess. All right, question number two deals with weapons burning during the New Jerusalem. So they say here, are you adding an additional seven years before the bride can be seen coming down from heaven, which is in the New Jerusalem? Your stance sounds correct. But then we head into the millennial kingdom and we know that there is no sun as the sun, S-O-N, will walk among us and the city is stunning. It doesn't sound much like the smell of death knocking down the passerby. Um, so, by the way, there's our picture of the New Jerusalem descending uh on the new heavens and new earth, in this case, the new earth. And that was so neat. we got to watch that again, don't we? And it's going to land right there on the state of Texas, and it's going to be fantastic. You'll notice that we redrew, or Brother Jim, Pastor Jim, redrew this globe because the original globe had oceans in it. And we noticed in the Bible that in the eternal state, there is no more sea. So I asked Pastor Jim, can we come up with something with no C in it? And he said, sure, we'll just redraw it, and there's what it looks like. So here comes the eternal city uh, down upon the new earth. And basically the question is, well, you're putting... Oh, and by the way, when that eternal state is ushered in, there's no more death at all. Revelation 21 verse 4 of that time period says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. So this can't be the millennium here. Because in the millennium there is death in a limited sense amongst the surviving mortals of the tribulation. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer be any death. There will no longer be any crying. There will no longer be any pain for the first Things have passed away. So the millennial kingdom is very interesting. I'm sorry, the eternal state, I should say, is very interesting by noting what is not there. You can learn a lot about the last two chapters of the Bible by observing what is not present any longer. And here are the things that won't be present any longer. Satan will not be present. The sea will not be present. Death, crying, or pain will not be present. The sun, S-U-N, will not be present. Because who is going to illuminate the eternal state? The sun, not S-U-N, but S-O-N. Do we understand that God doesn't need the sun, S-U-N? That's why the sun, S-U-N, was created on day four in the creation week. And light is apparent in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, 2, 3, 4. God said, let there be light. That's before the sun, S-U-N, came into existence. So God at the very beginning says, do not worship the sun, S-U-N. Worship the sun, S-O-N, because the sun, S-O-N, doesn't need the sun, S-U-N. So the Bible sort of ends just like it began. No son, S-U-N, but with Jesus, the son, S-O-N, illuminating everything. There won't be a moon. There won't be a temple like you have in the millennial kingdom. There won't be night. 
There won't be evil. There won't be any curse. There won't be any Democrats. Whoops, sorry, Freudian. Let's cut, cut that out of the tape. Freudian slip, sorry. And if I can criticize the Democrats, I have to criticize the other party. The Green Party won't be there either. And so it's really an amazing time that's going to happen. So, you know, the big question is, okay, well, you've got, with your view of Ezekiel 38 and 39, you've got, at the very end of it, burial and burning. Burial of bodies, uh, burning of weapons, as I've tried to explain, I think that is something that happens at the end of the tribulation period. And so people want to know, well, the way you have it set up is you've got burial and burning going into the eternal state, which I don't. The burial and the burning does not go into the eternal state, but it goes into the what? Millennial kingdom, which really isn't a big problem as far as I can tell. Because the millennial kingdom is not a new creation, but a renovation. Now, if somebody has an eschatological view of the burial and the burning going on into the eternal state, that would be a problem. Because the Bible is very clear that there won't be any death in the eternal state. But it will exist in the millennial kingdom. That, by the way, is why you can have a temple with animal sacrifices functioning in the millennial kingdom. But you cannot have a temple functioning with animal sacrifices in the eternal state. Because that would drag the death of animals into the eternal state. God wants a world, when all is said and done, where there's no death in it at all. That's why in early Genesis, before you get to the Noahic covenant, early man was not carnivorous. He was herbivorous. He did not eat flesh. He did not eat meat. Because for him to eat flesh or meat in the Garden of Eden would involve the death of animals. But God specifically created a world with no death in it. So when everything rolls back to God's original design and sin finally exits our world and God brings in a new heavens and a new earth, there won't be animal sacrifices. There won't be death any longer uh, because death is now a thing of the past. So really the bottom line in the whole question is, yes, I do hold to this two-phase view of Ezekiel 38 and 39. I do think that chapter 38 happens concurrently with the second seal judgment in Ezekiel 38. And I do believe that Ezekiel 39 flash forwards to the very, very end. And there is a description there of birds of prey gorging on the corpses. There is a description there about the burial of the dead for, what is it, seven months, was it? And there is a description there about weapons burning for seven years during the millennial kingdom, and people are very uptight about that because they think I'm dragging uh, problems into the eternal state. I'm dragging no problem into the eternal state. 
I am dragging issues into the millennial kingdom, which is not problematic because the millennial kingdom is very different than the eternal state. The millennial kingdom involves a renovation of the present earth. The eternal state is an ex nihilo new creation. So I hope that helps some. Um, most people, when they teach this, they'll just kind of take the eternal state and the millennial kingdom and ram, they'll use the ram jam and cram method. Just ram it all into one event. Why? Because it's easier that way. Well, like I said with the resurrection program, yes, it's easier to allegorize everything, to simplify it, but the problem is the Bible is a book of details. And the more interested you get in details, the more you start to see that the resurrection program is multifaceted. The more you start to see that the distinction between the millennial kingdom and the eternal state is multifaceted. And you reach that conclusion by applying the same literal method of interpretation to prophecy that you would apply anywhere else in God's word. Most churches are unwilling to do that. Most Christians today, by way of denominational affiliation, are sitting in churches that will never teach something like this because they've brought into this sort of allegorizing, spiritualizing mindset concerning Bible prophecy, and they would almost mock or poke fun at people that want to draw these distinctions. But Sugarland Bible Church is a dispensational church. We apply the literal, grammatical, historical, contextual, hermeneutic, or method of interpretation, not just to the Gospels in the book of Romans, but to the whole Bible. And the more you do that, the more you have to do more homework in terms of rightly dividing God's word. I would much rather not do the homework. I would much rather be intellectually lazy. I would much rather use the ram, jam, and cram method and tell people I'm a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out on the, at the end. Um, and be hopeful because Jesus is coming back soon. Praise God. Amen. End of sermon. Without any fleshing out of the details. I would much rather do that. But I'm more scared of God than I am people. I'm more scared of God holding me accountable as a teacher, which the book of James says he will. James 3, verse 1. Let few of you presume to be teachers, knowing that the teacher will incur the stricter judgment. I'm much more intimidated by that prospect than I am of potentially uh, losing people because they don't have the intellectual patience to walk through what I'm walking through here. So um, that's just a little bit here on our ministry philosophy. Question number three, and this kind of fits with what we've been speaking of. Someone wrote in and they said, I have been watching Middle East meltdown and a seventh day Adventist friend of mine. There's the problem there. Um, you're listening to a Seventh-day Adventist. And if you're listening to a Seventh-day Adventist like Doug Batchelor, you may have seen this guy on TV. He's very articulate. He's really got the gift of gab, I guess we could say. 
very intelligent, and he has this uh, show that he does. I think it's called Questions and Answers, where people send in questions. Um, what's it called? Amazing Facts. And he's got some of his facts wrong. But he's, it's very inter- interesting watching him. People are sending in these questions, and he's walking out sort of detailed prophetic answers, kind of like how we're doing here. And people are wondering, well, how come he's saying different things than you're saying, Pastor Andy? Well, the answer is he's a Seventh-day Adventist. A Seventh-day Adventist has a different eschatology than does a dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennialist. In fact, when you watch Doug Batchelor, it's not long until he starts attacking the pre-trib rapture. And I usually just, when I turn them on, I usually look at my watch and say, okay, let's see how long it's going to take him in this program before he starts bad-mouthing the pre-trib rapture. And sometimes he does it right out of the gate. Sometimes he disappoints me because he waits 20 minutes before he does it. But eventually he starts trying to bad-mouth the pre-trib rapture. So the first problem is this person is listening to the wrong people. I would really advise you carefully about social media and YouTube. Just because someone is on social media or television, for that matter, as Doug Batchelor is, or the radio, for that matter, doesn't mean they're giving you the truth. Um, you have a finite revelation, 66 books, that God has given you to screen everything through, including myself. This is the final court of arbitration not what somebody with a big following happens to say. But anyway, question three is, I've been watching your Middle East meltdown, and a Seventh-day Adventist friend of mine sent me a YouTube message. The title of the message is, Will Russia Play a Role in the Last Days? In the 21-minute message, now why is it 21 minutes? Because it's got to be edited for television. In the 21-minute message, he stipulates that Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 do not refer to Russia specifically, but instead Gog and Magog symbolically. Symbolically represent the enemies of Israel. Over the years, I have also heard messages from various pastors that also teach that Gog and Magog symbolically represent the enemies of Israel. I would so appreciate your comments on this commonly held view. So essentially what people do is they come to Ezekiel 38 and 39 and they say these are not real nations that are going to do this invasion. These are just symbols, great symbols for the great enemies of God in the last days. Um, As we have tried to explain, Ezekiel 38 and 39 is not set up that way. Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagorma do not refer to just some kind of symbol of evil, but refer to the nation of Turkey. Rosh refers to Russia. Magog refers to Central Asia. Persia refers to Iran. Kush refers to the Sudan. And Put refers to Libya. And we've given you this chart here, which shows you what all of these different 
ancient sounding names refer to. Magog is Central Asia, Rosh is Russia, Meshach is Turkey, Tubal is Turkey, Persia is Iran, Put is Libya, Kush is the Sudan, Gomer is Turkey, Togarma is Turkey, Sheba and Dedan are Saudi Arabia, Tarshish is Spain, the merchants of Tarshish are probably the money people in Spain, and of course, number 14 is Israel. Now, why is it that the Seventh-day Adventist mindset interprets these symbolically, but we are taking such a literal interpretation of these? Well, in the teaching that we've done on the Middle East Meltdown, we showed you our method. Watch people's method very, very carefully because method will determine conclusions. The Seventh-day Adventists that she's listening to have a completely different method that they're using. Our method is as follows. When you turn to Genesis 10, you don't have to turn there. There's a table of nations there. It's where Noah's descendants settled following the flood and following the Tower of Babel event. When you study Genesis 10, you're going to find all of these names in Genesis 10. Um, If you want evidence of this, go back to our sermon series in Genesis when we tackled Genesis 10. I think we spent four or five weeks in Genesis 10, and we tried to make that case there. So if you can figure out where those ancient people groups, descendants of Noah, settled, and you can identify the modern nations containing those people groups, suddenly you'll understand who the principal players are in this Ezekiel 38 and 39 invasion. And so we consult scholars like Josephus, who lived a little after the time of Christ. He wrote in his Antiquities all the way back in the first century, maybe a little bit at the beginning of the second century, And he tells you where Noah's descendants went. Herodotus, who wrote histories in 450 B.C., a little over a century removed from Ezekiel's time period, does the exact same thing. And another scholarly source that we use is BDB, which is a Hebrew lexicon. And that Hebrew lexicon will identify where these people groups ultimately settled. So we're not just looking at this and saying, hey, this looks like Russia. That, that, that would sell some books. Let's tell people it's Russia. Hey, this looks like Iran. I, I, I watched something on the news about Iran. Let's make Persia Iran. That sounds like fun. That'll really hook them in and sell some books. No, we're actually using a scholarly methodology to come to this conclusion. At this point in the study, we're not looking at current events. We're looking at exegetical facts. Then once you do your research on it and you figure out where these people groups settled, you look at your modern newspaper and you say, oh my goodness, Ezekiel saw 2,600 years ago what I'm seeing in my newspaper right now. Because all of these nations are in their proper orbit with a hostility towards the nation of Israel And these nations are all cooperating with each other. 
And so it's staggering what's happening in our world today. But this is not a newspaper exegesis reading of the Bible. We're not looking at current events and reading it back into the Bible. You start with the Bible first, figure out what the Bible is saying, and once you come to some firm conclusions there, then it's appropriate to look at the world and see how God is pushing things along to ultimately fulfill the specifics of his word. So in this study, we identified Magog as the, it's either pronounced the Scythians or the Scythians. When I call them the Scythians, everybody writes me and says, no, it's the Scythians. And then when I call them the Scythians, everybody writes me and says, no, it's the Scythians. So pick your poison. Depends on which syllable gets the emphasis. Amen. The Scythians you can identify as the people of Central Asia. That group moved from southern Russia to Central Asia uh, around the 8th century. And Rosh Gesinius, a great commentator of the past, a Hebrew scholar, says Rosh is undoubtedly the Russians. Clyde Billington in the Michigan Theological Journal looks at a lot of historical evidence concerning how the name Rosh is used in extra-biblical writings, and his conclusion is the Rosh people of the area of the north of the Black Sea form the people today known as the Russians. Um, Mark Hitchcock writes, linguistically, historically, there is substantial evidence that in Ezekiel's day there was a group of people known as Rash, Rusho, or Ross, who lived in what today is called southern Russia. Mark Hitchcock says, while the, while the word Rosh has a variety of forms and spellings, it is clear that the same people are in view. Rosh, apparently a well-known place in Ezekiel's day. With Rosh, there's kind of a dispute concerning is Rosh a common name, a proper name, or a common noun. It gets a little confusing because if you're reading from the KGV, it doesn't really say Rosh. It says Chief Prince. So there's a lot of people that will say Rosh is just sort of generic. It means Chief, Head, Top. But when you're reading this in the New American Standard Bible, it doesn't say Chief, Head, or Top. It says Rosh meaning that Rosh is a proper noun. It is a specific name. And so you have a decision you have to make. Is this just sort of a generic description of something, or is this an actual proper name and a proper noun? You'll notice that Gesenius, all the way back in 1847, kind of hard to accuse him of newspaper exegesis, because this was before Russia becoming a nuclear superpower. This was pre-1917, before the communist revolution in Russia. Gesenius, a very, very well-known scholar, calls Rosh a proper name. Mark Hitchcock, in his very wonderful book called The End, gives five reasons, and I won't reread those to you because we've dealt with those earlier in this series. 
he gives five reasons why Rosh is a proper name. And so we believe for those reasons that Rosh equals Russia. What about, uh, who's the next one here? Meshach. Josephus tells us that Meshach is the Cappadocians. Where was ancient Cappadocia? Modern-day Turkey. Uh, here's Herodotus writing just a literal, a little over a century from the time of Ezekiel. He wrote in 450 BC, and he identifies Meshach and Tubal as a group of people living to the uh, let's see here southeast. I think he said of the Black Sea. Now, when you look at a map, you'll see that he's speaking there of modern-day Turkey. Persia, who is Persia? We believe that Persia is Iran. Why do we think that? Because Persia has a paper trail. Persia is the empire that replaced the Babylonians in the times of the Gentiles in Daniel chapter 5. You simply keep tracking the name Persia right up to modern-day history. And in 1935, Persia changed its name from Persia to Iran, 1935. And then 1979, something very significant happened. Iran became Islamicized, and it became known as the Islamic Republic of Iran. Here's a picture here, um, but you can find this on the internet. It's a video of what life was like before Islam took over Iran. Uh, you can see women wearing dresses, pursuing education, driving in cars. That was under the Shah. When the Shah was toppled and replaced by the Ayatollah in 1979, everything changed. You can see the burqas. You can see the abuse of women, women being denied education, women being denied the right to drive a vehicle. Um, all of that disappeared. And you ought to think about that very, very carefully whenever you vote for somebody for office in the United States of America. Because the truth of the matter, if the Keith Ellisons of the world, and if you don't know who his who he is, you, you better Google him. And if the so-called squad get their way, the exact same thing is going to happen in the United States. Once Islam gets the upper hand, they will put the United States under Sharia law. And every right that you've ever known as, a, as an American will disappear just like that. And so keep that in mind when you're voting. Um, there's a historical precedent for how Islam has destroyed uh, virtually every host culture it's ever gone into. Uh, when Muslims are in the minority, the big talk is equal rights. Equal rights. Don't be a xenophobe. Don't be an Islamophobe. But once they get the levers of power, that language disappears. You will go under Sharia law, under the force of government. 
And so that's what we see developing in Iran since 1979, and that's Persia, we believe, right here in Ezekiel 38. Put, where are we going to put put? Put, Josephus identifies as Libya. Cush is identified by Josephus as Ethiopia. Here's a note from the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia. It says the designation Ethiopia is misleading for it did not refer to the modern state of Ethiopia. Cush bordered Egypt on the south or the modern day Sudan. And time is preventing me from describing the politics of all of these areas of the world. But when you start studying them, you'll say those are the hot places in terms of worldwide terrorism and Sharia law. Josephus identifies Gomer, not as Gomer Pyle, but as the Galatians. We know where southern Galatia is. It's the modern nation of Turkey. Josephus identifies Togorma as Phrygia. And when you study Acts 16, I think it's verse 6, it's a region that the Apostle Paul passed through on his second missionary journey. And it's very easy to identify that as modern-day Turkey. Tarshish, when you look it up in BDB, um, is modern-day Spain. There's a note there in the Ryrie Study Bible reflecting that. And, of course, the last nation on the list is Israel. I mean, does Israel mean Israel? Israel's a literal place. We all know that. So if Israel is an actual literal place on planet Earth, and the Seventh-day Adventists are basically telling you, oh, everything is just a symbol for evil, well, Israel's not a symbol. Israel's a geographical locale. It's an actual country. So therefore, all of the other names mentioned on Ezekiel's list are actual geographical locales. Now, where it gets tricky is Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9. Let me just talk through this, and then we'll stop. This is the end of the millennial kingdom. And it says this. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. There it is, Gog and Magog. Oh, no. To gather them for the war, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So there's an uprising, not at the end of the tribulation, end of the millennium. That uprising is called Gog and Magog. So a lot of people, I think wrongly, take Gog and Magog here in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and they ship it to the end of the millennium. That's a big problem because that would have weapons burning and bodies being buried, not in the millennium, but in the eternal state, which cannot happen. So even though the name Gog and Magog is mentioned at the end of the millennial kingdom, Here, it is a symbol. 
It's not a symbol in Ezekiel 38 and 39, but it is a symbol for something in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9. What's happening in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9, is different than Ezekiel 38 and 39. Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a tribulation period series of events before the millennial kingdom starts. What's happening at the end of the millennial kingdom is something that is completely and totally different. Now, this chart from Dwight Pentecost, I took his information and put it in chart form, will help you see the distinction between Ezekiel 38 and 39 and what happens at the end of the millennium. Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a northern invasion. That's not what's going on in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9. All nations will invade. Ezekiel 38 and 39 identifies the specific nations involved. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9 does not. It doesn't say Gomer, Meshach, Tubal, Tagorma, but Ezekiel 38 and 39 does. Ezekiel 38 and 39 leads to the millennial kingdom, but Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9 leads to the eternal state. Ezekiel 38 and 39, yes, it leads to the millennial kingdom, leads into the millennium, but the invasion we're talking about in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9, occurs at the end of the millennium. Ezekiel 38 and 39 has seven months necessary to dispose of the dead. That is not mentioned at all in Revelation 20, verse 9. Ezekiel 38 and 39, Satan is not bound. But he is bound in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9, let out of solitary confinement for a season. So what is happening at the end of the millennium is completely and totally different than Ezekiel 38 and 39. Totally different. So with that being said, then why does John, when he describes this final rebellion at the end of the millennial kingdom, why does he even use Gog and Magog? It's the same reason we use the word Waterloo. You ever made the statement, I met my Waterloo? You're not saying the Battle of Waterloo is being refought. What you're saying is the Battle of Waterloo is so famous that we can use that as sort of a parallel or an analogy to our current struggle. See, at this point, Gog and Magog does become symbolic. So I get this from David McLeod, and he writes, How can Gog and Magog, he's speaking of the end of the millennial kingdom, how can this refer to a battle in Revelation 19 before the millennium and this battle at the end of the millennium? The most likely explanation is that the Antichrist is Gog and will be defeated at the second coming. During the millennium, his defeat will become a legend. Among the nations, something like Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo. 
Then at the end of the millennial kingdom, the Gog and Magog legend is applied to a new historical situation. Revelation chapter 20 verse 8, with Satan leading, with Satan leading to Gog and Magog, Satan will meet his Waterloo, Gog and Magog. So when people say, Gog and Magog, that's just a symbol. They're wrong if they're saying it's a symbol in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's not a symbol. Those are real nations. But they're right if they're referring to the use of the term or terms at the end of the millennial kingdom in Revelation chapter 20 verses 7 through 9. And what Doug Batchelor will do is he'll go to that symbolic reference here and say, well, it's a symbol everywhere. As my professor, Dr. Toussaint, used to say, that dog won't hunt. Yes, it is a symbol like the use of the word Waterloo in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9, but you can't say it's a symbol everywhere. So Ezekiel 38 and 39 is real nations in real time that are forming as we speak. And what God is going to do there is going to be so amazing that it's going to become a legend. And it's going to be sort of used as a yardstick by which to measure all future battles and interventions of God. So, my goodness, we got through three questions. Resurrection during the millennium? Answer, I don't know. Weapons burning in the New Jerusalem? No weapons will burn in the New Jerusalem, but they will burn in the millennial kingdom. Is Gog and Magog symbolic? Yes, in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9, but it's not symbolic in Ezekiel 38 and 39. You you can't have something be symbolic the first time it's used in the Bible. First time it's used, it's not a symbol. But once the precedent is established for what happened, it then can be used as, as a symbol in subsequent scripture. And so look at that, we're out of time. And then some. Father, we're grateful for your word, your truth, grateful for the people that come to Sunday school and actually want to dive into some of the specific intricacies of your word. Help us to be good stewards of these sections of your word. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We lift these things up in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen and happy many, many, many intermissions.